dense friends, and welcome to the Dense Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoin, and I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we will be unpacking the Tony Award nominations for this very strange Broadway year, talking about Dr. Wendy Zychuk, um, also known as the Bubble Doctor, who's helping dancers work safely through the pandemic, discussing two ballet companies' very different approaches to COVID-era performing, one all-digital model and one in-person model. And hearing a message from Sidra Bell, the renowned choreographer who is the first Black woman to create a work for the New York City Ballet. It's a digital piece set to premiere on Tuesday. We're really excited for you to hear from her. Um, But before we get into all of that and hopefully do 100% less crying than we did last week in our very intense episode. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Here is your friendly reminder to follow us on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit. Um, We're so thankful to all of you who are already following and sharing your thoughts and your hot takes with us, especially the hot takes. We love those. If you aren't already part of the group, come hang out and talk dance shop with us. Um, Again, we're at the.dance.edit on Instagram and at dance underscore edit on Twitter. So now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Pretty short list this week. Let's get right into it. Starting with some good news. The Ford Foundation and Andrew W. Mellon Foundation announced the first cohort of Disability Futures Fellows, a new initiative aiming to increase the visibility and elevate the voices of disabled creative practitioners. Alice Shepard, Jaron Herman, and Peril are among the first class of fellows, each of whom will receive a $50,000 grant administered by United States artists. Oh, such good news. Shockingly, and more good news, uh, Dancing with the Stars' British sister show, Strictly Come Dancing, made its season 18 debut, and with that came the debut of the show's first-ever same-sex dancing couple. Olympic gold medalist and former boxer Nicola Adams danced alongside professional Katya Jones, making Strictly history. Dancing with the Stars, you're up next. Yep, get on that. Retweet. Uh, the New York Dance and Performance Awards, better known as the Bessies, will hold a virtual event this year honoring the 2019 through 2020 nominees on Monday, December 14th. Now, while all the nominees will receive the customary honorarium, the Bessies committee has decided to forego presenting individual awards this year as an acknowledgement of the dance artists who are unable to present their work due to the pandemic. A prominent hip-hop teacher and choreographer, Eric Saradpan, was arrested on suspicion of engaging in lewd acts involving underage students. Saradpan is alleged to have had inappropriate contact and relationships with former and current dance students and remains in police custody in lieu of bail. Uh, And according to The Hollywood Reporter, some online dance fitness programs have more than doubled their audiences this year. Unsurprising. Steezy, for example, has seen a 500% audience growth in 2020. At least there are some people out there doing better business. It's good to hear. And in today's episode of Things We Didn't Have on our 2020 Bingo Card, Donald Trump's (laughs) dancing at a recent campaign rally has spawned a TikTok dance trend called creatively, the Trump dance. Some of Trump supporters seem to think that the TikTok trend is in celebration of the president's dance moves. We'd recommend you watch a few of the videos and decide for yourselves. Bless the teens of the internet for just knowing exactly how to put Donald Trump in his place. The TikTok (laughs) teens are on it. They're on it. Also, hey, what's up? Go vote. (laughs) While we're here. So one of the reasons that news list was on the shorter side is because we're actually going to talk about one of the biggest news items of the past week now in our first segment. Um, The Tony Award nominations were announced right after our last episode dropped. 
And while as in normal years, there's been, you know, not insignificant fluttering about who was snubbed and who earned uh, the most nods. And we do want to talk about that. There are also more and frankly, more interesting issues to discuss this time around. Um, it's obviously been an incredible difficult time for the theater industry. And during the shutdown, the Broadway community in particular has been thinking about how it can move forward, how it can become more equitable, and how it needs to reinvent itself so it can return stronger. But as the nominations made clear, the American theater wing doesn't seem all that interested in reinvention right now. So this year, there were only four new musicals, 10 new plays, and four play revivals eligible for Tony Awards. The cutoff came on February 19th, 2020, notably one day before the opening of the revival of West Side Story. Um, by contrast, last year, there were 34 shows under consideration for Tony Awards. So obviously, this year is definitely a smaller pool. And it ended up being that only three of four eligible musicals, Jagged Little Pill, Moulin Rouge, and Tina to Tina Turner musical, were nominated. There have been quite a few tweets that The Lightning Thief was not honored with a nomination despite being one of four musicals that was eligible. And the fact that it was the only musical under the deadline with an original score, they still managed to snub The Lightning Thief, which I am a little bit bitter about because Chris McCarroll is everything. Speaking of Chris McCarroll, one of the weirdest categories this year is unquestionably Best Leading Actor with Aaron Tveit as the only nominee in the category. I, a Tony for Aaron Tveit. He still has to receive 60% of the ballots to take home the award. And it's 2020, so who knows? But congratulations to Aaron Tveit on his Tony Award. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least it's deserved. Yeah, I mean, he Aaron's great, <laughs> but it's still very strange. The other category that I think we're, you know, looking at the most this year is somehow still best choreography, despite the fact that only three shows were nominated. There's still going to be a pretty contentious fight for the best choreographer, Tony, this year. Well, and it's also a really interesting mix of dance mm -hmm. makers who are nominated. Uh, so Anthony Van Last, who's a longtime Broadway and West End choreographer, I believe he has one previous Tony nomination in 2004 for Bombay Dreams. But then you look, we have Sonia Taya with Moulin Rouge, her Broadway choreographic debut, and then City Larby with Jagged Little Pill, also Broadway choreographic debut, and three extremely different choreographers mm -hmm. uh, with three extremely different shows. All of which I could see winning the Tony for Best Choreography in any given year. I'm just saying I think it's Sonia Tyus to lose. I just, the choreography for that show is so incredible. Which actually, okay, this brings up a point that was brought up by Mo Brady in The Ensemblist, mm -hmm. uh, talking about, hey, this is a year that we could potentially be reimagining the Tonys, maybe bring back some old categories that have gone by the wayside, one of which was brought up was Best Ensemble. Mm -hmm. There is a great argument to be made that the incredible triple threat cast of Moulin Rouge deserves a best ensemble Tony. Or the Tony for best dance performance because Robin Herter in Moulin Rouge was something else. And I will say she did get nominated for best supporting actress because queen, but her dancing in that show was, I still don't have the words for it. <laughs> or to give some love to Jagged Little Pill, how about Ebony Williams, Ebony Williams in that yeah, show? Correct. Like 
I think there was a quote in the ensemble's piece that really stuck out to me. It said, even in this instance where there was more than a half year for nominators to rethink how productions were celebrated and championed, the categories presented last week upheld the status quo. They made a really good point, you know, in this year where we only have one performer in the best leading actor category, could we not have combined best leading actor and actress? There were so few nominees anyways, and they could have reflected a significant cultural shift away from the gender binary, but instead they chose to follow tradition and leave Aaron Tveit standing by himself in his category. It just seems like such an odd year to go about business as usual. Which like maybe the idea is to make it feel like, hey, some things are still resilient and we're still putting on this show. I like some sense of normalcy. I just felt like it it did nothing to reflect the context in which these awards are occurring. It just exactly. seemed so out of place. Well, that said, I'm looking forward to watching Aaron and Adrian Warren take home their Tonys. <laughs> That'll be great. <laughs> I mean, I think as fans, yes, we're excited that we'll have a chance to celebrate at least some of the incredible people mm-hmm. who are working on Broadway right now. But it also does feel like there were some missed opportunities here. Also, I was so happy to just take a backseat and listen to you guys nerd out about that. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. And just um, an FYI to listeners who maybe haven't entirely read up on this, uh, the Tonys are theoretically happening sometime in December or January. We still don't have a date. And as of right now, it sounds like it's not going to be a traditional television broadcast. It sounds like they're going straight to online streaming. You will get more news as we get more news because Cadence and I are big, big, big nerds. (laughs) You're on it. So in our next segment, we're going to talk about my favorite kind of story, um, one that gets at the crux of a complicated situation by profiling just a really great character. The New York Times recently ran a piece about Dr. Wendy Zychek, a Manhattan-based internist who's now known as the Bubble Doctor because she's been helping organizations in a few different parts of the dance world create safe bubble environments for their artists, which lets them keep working during the pandemic. Um, Zychek has this sort of remarkable pedigree in that she was a dancer herself, and then she trained under Balanchine's doctor, actually. And she was for quite a while the Rockettes medical director. And the story of how she came to be the bubble expert and then what that job actually entails, it's first of all, really informative. You learn a lot reading it. And it's also just so compelling. Like as a journalist, I'm kind of jealous that I didn't get to this story first. She seems like she would be such a delightful interview, right? Um, So it's a really interesting story. She's been, for the past several months, conferring with uh, a lot of different dance and performing arts organizations in order to set up these essentially residency bubbles, um, from Dance Theater of Harlem to Works in Process at the Guggenheim to Fall for Dance at City Center to the New York Choreographic Institute. Kind of how it all started was over the summer, she was approached by Duke Deng of Works in Process at the Guggenheim about, hey, we want to do commissions. We want to get artists out of their tiny little apartments. Is there a safe way to do this? And with her help, they ended up figuring out how to set up these like safe, creative residency bubbles using residency spaces upstate where the dancers could be entirely isolated from everyone except each other after going through extensive isolation testing procedures and just kind of keeping things set up in a way that is keeping everyone safe and keeping everyone isolated so that they can actually be in a studio doing what they do. Margaret, you said that one of the best things about this story was how informative it was. And I totally agree because just reading it, I thought it was so interesting that one of the biggest struggles with creating dance bubbles isn't, you know, the sequestration or anything like that. It's actually the cost 
they were saying that these bubbles mm. were, of course, inspired by the NBA testing bubble. But the sports world is a little bit better funded than the dance world. So it's a lot a harder. <laughs> just, a, just a little. <laughs> so it's a lot harder for dance companies to create these bubbles effectively. You know, the testing can be really costly. For Dance Theater of Harlem, they created a three-week-long bubble that cost over $100,000 just for those three weeks. I mean, clearly it's a very pricey band-aid. This can't be the way that things are mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future. I do think it's interesting that Dr. Zajcek has kind of been able to work around budget constraints in her plans. That's a little bit reassuring. I think it's interesting, too, that in her interview, she said the size of the company doesn't necessarily matter as much as the context in which they're rehearsing and performing. Like, Fall for Dance is much more involved because they aren't actually living in a bubble. You know, they're going home to different places. They're not living together. And as, you know, City Center is quite literally at the center of Manhattan. The center of the city. <laughs> I think also I appreciated like it's not so much about the size of the company as is the context because very much what we're looking at here, it's not a one size fits all. Now it's all based mm -hmm. on the same science, the same looking at the facts and looking at what the risk factors are and figuring out how to mitigate those. But the Spalford Dance City Center commissions, those were all happening. The dancers were rehearsing masks in addition to other safety protocols that were in place. The only time they came off was for the filming on stage versus, you know, the creative bubbles where they're able to literally go upstate and it's just this group of people who have been tested. They're taking the masks off and being able to just be around each other. And that is very much context dependent. I think as a citizen of the United States, though, like the most frustrating part for me reading this was just how important testing is and that our country still doesn't seem to have figured that out. But at least we have our bubble doctor who did. <laughs> I mean, yes, it is frustrating that we need a bubble doctor to exist. It, it does, though, create a potentially really useful model for dance companies to follow mm -hmm. if they have the means. And if they have the means is the key Big phrase there. there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so next, we're actually going to tell a tale of two ballet companies, if you will. Um, we're going to look at two companies that are currently putting their own elaborate safety protocols into action. So the dancers of Pacific Northwest Ballet and the dancers of Richmond Ballet are back on stage right now, but in two very different scenarios. PNB just launched an all-digital season. Um, its dancers have been taking to the McCall Hall stage in Seattle to perform ballets for empty houses, and then video of those performances is being distributed to subscribers online. Richmond Ballet, on the other hand, is performing a COVID-era adaptation of its annual studio series for an in-person, socially distanced audience. So a smaller crowd than usual, but still like an actual crowd. And Richmond Ballet is one of the only dance companies in the U.S. that's doing that. So there's a lot to talk about, and there's a lot to learn from these two very different pandemic performance models. Something I find so interesting about Pacific Northwest Ballet's approach was we spoke with Peter Bull for a dance magazine story over the summer and PNB was still figuring out what exactly it was going to do, figuring out like, are we doing a live performance model or are we going to retrofit our theaters so that we can film things without an audience there and put it out to digital subscribers, which is ultimately what they ended up deciding to do. And you know, even taking the audience out of the equation. It requires so much forethought into the process. And yet they still are presenting new works that have been created over the last couple of months. 
essentially by dividing the company up into specific pods. Universal mask wearing, temperature checks, testing. Jessica Lang, who is one of the choreographers who were commissioned, was talking about how she was limited by the number of dancers that she could have in the space at one time, and also they were in a section of the space, and she was in a different section of the space, and she couldn't cross into that space. And figuring out how to work within those limitations, which I feel like the the adage limitations foster creativity uh, has never been more apt than it has been of late. And it's turned into this really fascinating thing where the company is doing this experiment in, okay, our dancers are performing live. We're just filming it instead and putting it out. Yeah. I mean, again, we should talk about the money. Yes. The subscription prices that they're charging don't even come close to the cost of mounting this whole Absolutely. thing. But it is good that this virtual season has sort of accelerated a digital transformation that it sounds like was starting to begin at the company anyway. And I guess the upside of digital dance, too, as we've talked about before, is accessibility, this broader and different kind of audience base. So let's talk about what's happening at Richmond Ballet. Totally different setup. Yeah, so Richmond Ballet, you know, is also, I think, being very innovative, but somehow in a more traditional sense, they're doing shows in front of live audiences. They're actually doing three months of in-person performances using the company's 14 main company members. They're doing one-hour shows with no intermissions. Only married couples or roommates are performing pas de deux, and masks are mandated for everyone in the building, including the dancers on stage. And I have to say, looking at the photos from these performances, I need to shout out to the costuming department because the masks are always perfectly coordinated with the costumes and they look so natural and lovely in photos. Hey, masks are now a part of costume design, something we are thinking about in 2020. I think it's pretty mind-boggling to think about the extent of the pivoting that these companies have been forced Mm -hmm. to do and have done successfully so far in this short period of time. Like, look, it's obviously frustrating that they're being forced to outlay all this money and time just mm-hmm. to do the thing they do. And of course, the larger context here is that most dance groups simply don't have the resources to make performances happen at this scale. But to keep the focus positive and to stop myself from spiraling into that dark place we went to last week, these are steps forward. And I think the digital seasons especially are helping companies like PMB learn strategies that will be useful post-pandemic, that at least they're an investment in a potential future instead of just like money poured into the COVID sinkhole. Ellen Walker of Pacific Northwest Ballet said, um, this is a loss mitigation strategy. It's not a revenue earning strategy. So it's a stopgap, but hey, it's getting dancers back on stage and keeping the companies uh, engaged with their communities. So now we have the next installment in our voice memo series. And this week we're hearing from Sidra Bell, who is a choreographer and educator and artistic director. And let's be real, one of the people we want to be when we grow up. She is the founder of Sidra Bell Dance New York. She is, this list is insane. She's currently a master lecturer at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia and an adjunct professor at Marymount Manhattan College and a lecturer at SUNY Purchase (laughs) and an adjunct professor at Ball State University. She is busy. Her work has won all kinds of awards, and she's created for companies all over the world. And on Tuesday, October 27th, next Tuesday, her commission for New York City Ballet, which is a video-based project, will premiere digitally. And that's a history-making moment because she's the first Black woman to create a ballet for the company. So here she is to talk about all of that. Hi, Dance Edit listeners. This is Sidra Bell, the Artistic Director of Sidra Bell Dance New York. The pandemic has really initiated 
a different kind of reflection in my work. I was personally affected by a number of cancellations and projects postponed. But in the reimagining, I was able to consider various modalities within which my work could exist digitally. And there have been some really exciting developments for the company with broadcasting and new creation on film. So while it's been a time of challenge, there has been a lot of growth, personal growth for me, and taking the time to reflect on the ways that I want to work uh, over the next 10 years. The work for New York City Ballet has been really exciting and has had beautiful momentum. I started to view dancers at the end of 2019 in class and on stage and had an opportunity to really get to know the company and start to imagine a stage work. When the uh, possibility of doing uh, a film came up, I was really excited to have time to create and work with a cinematographer and with a site-specific world, and especially on the Lincoln Center campus, which is so iconic. The process really unfolded online with a quartet of dancers via Zoom, and then I had an opportunity to work with them one-on-one -on -one in the studios at New York City Ballet. And then we spent a lot of time on site reimagining how the dance could work in its chronology in these different spaces. So you really get to see a tour of the Lincoln Center campus, which is exciting. It was filmed uh, last week and it's premiering sometime between October 27th and the 31st online. I'm really excited about it. I think it's a interesting rendering and you'll get to see the dancers in a totally different uh, context. I worked with Emily Kikta, Peter Walker, Galab Kayali, and Mira Nadan. And I really loved my cast. They were super willing and um, ready to collaborate and uh, try out new things. So it was, again, a process of beautiful momentum. It's such an honor to be the first Black woman to create for New York City Ballet, and it really feels important in the context of being a New Yorker and attending Dance Theatre of Harlem and the LA School. I had so many role models um, in those training experiences and I feel like this tremendous gift is really a moment to carry all of my mentors and teachers and my family uh, with me in this honor. Um, of being the first Black woman to choreograph at New York City Ballet. It's tremendous in that feeling that I know that this represents so much, and I hope that it will offer hope and great change for the future in the field. And I'm excited to, to be that voice and to continue to break barriers. My goal as a creator has always been to have my work entrenched in the community, and there's been a focus on education and inclusiveness and leadership always, and I think um, it's been really important for me to be a mentor and leader and to not only work within the institutions for dance, but to work with members of the community and um, in inclusive workshops and in my travels, encountering various sites where dance can take place. And so I think that we have a very important role. Movement is the, the house that we can all gather under. It's something that we can share 
And that's something that I've always tried to do in my work is to share the form generously. Currently, I'm working on a new film with my dancers, Three Emissions is the title, and it was commissioned by Trey McIntyre's new platform, and it will premiere on December 3rd. And that was really exciting because when COVID hit, the dancers and I were supposed to be in Europe with an interdisciplinary project, and when that got canceled, it disrupted our momentum. So it was really exciting to have this opportunity to be presented by the Trey McIntyre project and to reconsider the material we had been, been developing for that project in, in Slovenia in a different framework. And uh, so we've been working on that and uh, also thinking about a performance without audience at the 92nd Street Y in collaboration with saxophonist and composer Emmanuel Wilkins, and that will premiere on December 4th. So there's a lot of exciting things going on. And again, because of all the cancellations that happened, and particularly the interdisciplinary project that was to happen in Slovenia, it's been great to reconnect with my company and uh, work in these new modes. I'm also working and guiding groups from eight different universities which has been very grounding, uh, mentoring young choreographers and teaching technique classes and also generating material. So some of those schools have been Alonzo King Lines Training Program and Ball State University, Marymount Manhattan College, Columbia University, University of the Arts. And so it's been really great to have these opportunities to connect with students in this time of isolation and to help them think about the future of contemporary performance. I've really loved having the time to dig back into a process of research and learning again in this time of isolation and with my students building bibliography materials that they can reference and grab onto for their physical research. So I've been reading a lot from Contact Quarterly, Nancy Stark-Smith, and also from Performance Philosophy. And just reading essays and looking at videos of William Forsyth and Bill T. Jones and Trisha Brown and just uh, thinking about not only my personal history in the field, but also looking beyond and helping the students to navigate and be inspired through these uh, bibliographies I've been building for my courses it's something I hadn't had time to do a lot of before, so I'm, I'm building up my library and thinking about how to translate information from the physical research into scholastic learning modules. And uh, I've also been doing a lot of scribing and drawing and uh, thinking about movement as a visual form and learning new programs um, for digital media. So it's just, again, been such a time of growth, personal growth, and also collaborative growth with my students. My hope for the dance world is that we keep moving with the generosity that is inherently ours and to think about models of efficiency and care. I think in the business of dance, we sometimes lose that connectivity and sense of community. And what I've noticed is the outpouring of sharing resources in this time and my hope is that we don't lose that and go back to models of isolation or siloed work processes that we continue to harness and use the power that we have. I think the universality of dance is, is so important and um, 
we need to be able to communicate that beyond our community. So my hope is that we can start to build audiences that have greater understanding of what we do and that we also cultivate all of the plethora of voices that are part of our, our community by sharing resources and being more attuned to the diversity of this community. Thank you so much for that, Sidra. Please, we encourage you to visit SidraBellDanceNY.org and to follow at SidraBellDanceNewYork on Instagram just to stay up to date on what Sidra and her company are doing, including that project for Flatpak, which we're so curious about. And then beginning Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time, you can find her new work for New York City Ballet, which is called Pixelation in a Wave Within Wires on the company's YouTube and Facebook pages um, and at NewYorkCityBallet.com. We'll link to all of that in the episode description. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, y'all. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.